I think, Celeste, you'd be good in a disaster. You didn't get phased at all. You just kept going very well. It's wonderful. <clears throat> well, let me pray and we'll dig into the Word. Father, we, uh, we are <clears throat> aware of how privileged we are to be able to sit and listen to your Word read. And we um, pray now that, please, you'll put out in our hearts uh, the um, opportunity to dig deep into what you've said. Please help me speak uh, what's true, what's helpful, what's good. But please help us uh, be touched deeply this morning by the work of your Holy Spirit amongst us, uh, who takes these words and embeds them in our hearts. And we pray, please, for transformation and change. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever wished that God did something differently to what you think he's done? Have you wished he said different things than he said? Do you find yourself disagreeing with things that he said? Um, have you had any of these experiences? Um, now, uh, it almost ought to be the case that you've had these experiences. I want to explore this with you. It ought to almost always be the case, now, notice language, almost always be the case that you've had an experience of being disappointed, angry, disagreeing with God. It ought, it ought, it's almost an expected thing amongst all of us that we'd be like that, that you've had that experience. Have you had that experience? Why? Why should it be the kind of thing we expect? Because I tell you, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The very nature of God and our human relationships, the very nature of God and the humanity that we have, we have built in with who we are an inevitability, an in inevitability that we won't think what God thinks and do what God thinks, uh, does, that we'll find ourselves disappointed and therefore opposed to, disagreeing with, angry. Now, not because he is by nature disappointing, it's not the problem with God. It's not because he gets things wrong regularly. It's because we don't understand the complexity of the universe we live in. We don't understand God and his ways. We don't understand what it is to run a universe like God is running. Um, but because we can't get the complexity of things, therefore the way we see the world and the way we would do things in the world will always by nature be out of step with the way God would do things and run things and say things. He's just a given. Because we're mere creatures and fallen creatures at that. You know, a child-parent relationship. Um, I expect a child to misunderstand what's best for them. We, 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 you know, when the one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, when a child is, is growing in your family, you ought to come as an adult with the expectation that they'll misunderstand what's best. They're a child. The book of Proverbs tells us that folly is in the heart of the child. You, you, you actually need to, one of the tasks of parenting is to bring wisdom into what is by nature bent and foolish. That's the nature of parenting. Don't fall into the trap of imagining in our current culture that they're right, our current culture's right, that we've begun to preference the thoughts and desires and wants of children to imagine that they have got it by nature right and we've somehow perverted and we need to listen to them. Listen to them, of course. Take heed, take seriously, listen. But folly's in the heart of the child. That's the nature of the relationship. 
don't imagine that they have the wisdom to run the world, run their lives, run their own friends and so on. Before God and in the vastness of the complexity of creation, we are mere children before Him. And fallen creatures, sinful creatures before Him. And so, there will necessarily be times where what He does, what He thinks, what He says, we will disagree with, we'll think is wrong, we'll get angry about. Now, I say all of this, do you know why? I say all of this because we're in the last chapter of the book of Jonah this morning and the book of Jonah lands in this very place. It lands in a place where there is uh, the great prophet, a prophet, whether great or not, actually the prophet Jonah is angry with God. It's expressed a number of times there. Look at, grab your Bibles, chapter 4, have a look at it with me, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. There he is, you see it again in verse 9, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is, in other words, the less real, so well, I am so angry, says Jonah. Here you have a follower of God, angry, a man who actually says earlier in his uh, experience that he is the, I am a Hebrew, chapter 1 verse 9, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and yet he is now angry with that God. We're going to be considering together our inability to understand God and think His thoughts and relate to Him and get angry, all of that because that's where Jonah takes us this morning, where God's Word takes us this morning. Um, He gets so angry, verse uh, 2 and 3 there, that he wants to, verse 3, he wants to die. He, He would rather not live in a world where these kinds of things happen. He's so angry about it. Um, Here is a man who is angry at God. Now, there's a lot of anger. Um, Why? Why is Jonah angry? He's angry because God has not done what Jonah thought he ought to have done. And later, he has done what he thought he ought not do. He thinks God's wrong and that he's done wrong and that he said wrong. If he was God, he would do it all differently. And there's the point at which we want to dig this morning because it will be a massive health, help to our spiritual lives to come into contact actually with the true God and not the God of our imagination. Have you ever been angry with God? With what He's done in your life, with what He's done to others? Have you been disappointed in Him? Have you, have you differed over what He's taught and said in the Scriptures? You found yourself, that can't be right, that can't be appropriate for our time, that's... Have you found yourself thinking these thoughts? Well, you need to own it. Don't say anything now. But don't imagine God doesn't know that you've been angry with Him and disappointed with Him. Don't imagine he's, it's hidden from Him. Own it. Yes, I have been. And perhaps you're sitting there this morning going, I still am. Why is He? How come? Why didn't? Jonah had his anger towards God. God kept him in his anger in a sense, he explored his anger with him as part of a blessing for him to teach him and through him to teach us. You know, owning the fact that you have been angry with God, owning the fact that you've been disappointed with God, owning the fact that you wish God did things differently and said things, owning that puts you in a place where you can grow. If you keep pretending that it's not the case, you'll never actually come to terms with where you're really at and that's 
means you'll never actually move forward, you'll never mature, you'll never grow up to be the full measure of Christ. Um, it, it, it's, um, it actually, here's a little puzzle for you, it is actually a sign of spiritual health that you have been puzzled, concerned, differing with God. Now, how can that be the case? Let me give you a, a spiritual health diagnostic 101. If you've never been angry with God or disappointed with God or disturbed with God or shocked about what God does, it's probably because, not necessarily because, but probably because, the God you worship is not the true God, but the God of your own imagination. If you have never been angry with God, disappointed with God, wished God said things differently, did things differently, if you've never found yourself in that place... It's probably, not necessarily, it's probably because the God you worship is the God of your own imagination. Can you see how that follows? A, a man, a woman, uh, when they're younger, perhaps dreams of a future spouse. And as they dream about their future husband or their future wife, uh, this new future husband wife fits them perfectly. You, you know, uh, will want what they want and do what they want and they'll be, have the same tastes and interests. And then, of course, all of us get married and find that the real wife or husband that we've married is different to us, doesn't like what we like, is not... And then you go away from each other for... Uh, if something happens in, in hospital or whatever, and you dream and scheme, and, and you come back, actually, it seems so good in my mind, but when I come back again, it's... Have you had that experience? I never have, of course, but have you had that experience? Um, <laughs> In our imagining, as we imagine God, we shape Him to have the same values, the same interests, the same loves as us. He becomes perfect because He's just a larger version of me. And so I've never been angry with God because everything He does is what I would have Him do. Well, I think that's possibly because you've created your own God. Do you see what I'm saying? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You expect it to be different. Let me give you this image. I'm going to trial this little thing for you. I saw this uh, some time ago. Come, let's see if, uh, thanks, Cliff. Just thank our brother Cliff for all the work he does up there. He does a good job, doesn't he? Look, there we go. Um, you can do it by clapping. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jesus washing Donald Trump's feet. Now, what do you don't say anything because I'm going to come back to this shortly. What, what do you just think? What, what, how do I react to that image? How might people react to that image? Is that the Jesus I know? Would that would the true Jesus do that? Would I want Jesus to be like that? How do you react? Don't say anything, but just puzzle over it. What does it do for you? And I want to explore those reactions shortly. Um, take thanks, Cliff. That pull it off. It's no sign of comfort in your spiritual life that you've had no stress points with you and God. It's not a a comfort that, oh no, I've never been angry, never been disappointed. It's no comfort actually because it could be a sign that you've had longer as a Christian to find ways to shape how he is to fit in with how you want him to be. You've just found ways to reinterpret the Scriptures so that they actually fit the way you'd like them to be. And so you've not had any disappointments because you've had longer to work out how to shape God to be your friend and the one that fits and suits you. The warning of Jesus is deeply profound. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That is to say, it's not, it's not your profession, it's not even your miraculous experiences. Do you remember he talks there? It's that you bow the knee to him and you bend your will to him and you be shaped by him, not him shaped by you. Now, in many ways, the point I'm trying to make here is more fundamental than the actual details of this passage. But let's get into the details of the passage because I think you'll see some of this emerge as we go through it. Why is Jonah angry with God? Well, here's the headline. Because Jonah hated the fact that God was merciful to the Ninevites. That's what's gone on here. Now, just a warning, uh, that won't be our problem, I dare say. We'll come back to that shortly. But that's what's going on for Jonah. And uh, let me read to you verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Chapter 3, verse 10 when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became very angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live in a world where this kind of thing happens, where the people like Ninevites get forgiven by you. I don't want to be in that world, says Jonah. He is angry. You see, this finally explains what's gone on for the whole book. It's interesting, we're not told this until very, the very end. We just see Jonah run away. We don't know if it's because he feels inadequate or afraid. We just don't know. He just runs. God, through miraculous circumstances, brings him to the place where he wants him to be in chapter 3, where he finally proclaims the message that God has given him of judgment. And in response to that message of judgment, they turn, the Ninevites turn, God relents and is uh, gracious and forgiving. But Jonah runs away because he didn't want the people of this great city, do you remember chapter 1? This great city that's full of wickedness. He doesn't want this great evil city to be forgiven. He doesn't want to go and preach a word that will lead to their forgiveness. And Jonah knew this is what God was like. You see there in verse... Um, uh, verse three, 2 and 3, he quotes pretty much effectively from Exodus chapter 34, where God, we've looked at this a couple of times in the last few months, where God reveals himself to be a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. You get it too wonderfully again in Joel chapter 2. Jonah knows these truths about God, that God is, a, uh, God is a God that if you return to your God, let me just, Joel chapter 2, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This is what God is like. Jonah knew this. He knew this about his God. But he didn't want this nation to experience that mercy. Now, why? Well, there's a couple of reasons, there's probably more than this, but the first reason is that these people were genuinely evil. The Ninevites, the great capital city of Assyria, uh, were immoral, violent, hateful, wicked, uh, slaughtering nations, 
They crushed and oppressed people. We don't know anything about this. We, we just, middle class, central coast, we have no clue. But the kind of massacres you see as, as troops uh, can get away with things and vent their ethnic outrage at others. This was Nineveh, Nineveh, the Ninevites. And secondly, they weren't Israel. They were Assyrians. They were another nation. And Jonah says, forgive them. Go and, go and bring a message to them that might lead them to forgiveness. I don't want them forgiven, I want them condemned. Now, it is easy sitting here in the beautiful central coast to have little sympathy for Jonah. What, what a horrible man. Do you not find yourself thinking that? What, 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 petulant and petty. We would want Nineveh forgiven, wouldn't we? Now, why, why do we want them forgiven and he didn't? Well, because we're morally superior. No, no. It's because Nineveh's a long way away and we don't know who they were and we don't care. It's easy to forgive when you've not been hurt. Interesting, there's a, um, uh, a man called Miroslav Volf uh, was um, during, in Yugoslavia during that kind of dreadful atrocities that occurred some decades ago now. And uh, he talks in one book, uh, I couldn't quite find the quote, I'm sorry, but he talks in one book about um, the, how easy it is to talk about forgiveness when you live in middle class, comfortable society and the only real hurts you've experienced is someone taking a parking spot. Do you know what I mean? Uh, cutting in on you when you're trying to drive somewhere. But when you live in a country that's war-torn and you've had the experience of ethnic cleansing and your, um, your, your wife has been slaughtered in front of you, your, your daughters have been killed and taken off, um, and your whole extended family uh, shot, when you've had all of that occur, uh, Wolf makes the point that it's very hard in that context to preach forgiveness. It is a very different thing indeed. The most compelling want in that context is, what is it? Revenge, justice. And so you see it in nations where who knows how it all started now because there's the response back and then the response back and the response back and we don't know where it all began but now undoing all of that is, it's, it's impossible. But middle class Australia, you might have someone at school, a parent that you don't like. Very different thing. You know, I find it easy to think of God forgetting that giving the Ninevites because they didn't hurt me, they didn't hurt my family. But to imagine forgiving a man who took my daughter and did unspeakable things, now that's a test. You know, there is something here that's important. Justice, judgment, is a glorious thing. Evil deserves to be condemned. There is something glorious about evil being put in its place, destroyed, judged, vengeance happening. Hell, the reality of hell is testimony, it's been said, to the dignity of humanity and our evil. That God does punish and judge is testimony to how seriously He takes us. We do, though, hate the thought that God still might condemn some because we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. And here's where... Uh, we, Jonah gets angry that God forgave the Ninevites. 
I think many of us find ourselves outraged that God might not forgive everybody. Different, but the same issue. You see, what should we do with evil? Let me put a face to it. And uh, I, I thought I was going to use this illustration before this week. I realised this man is now on Netflix as a documentary series or something. Don't, do not watch the thing I'm about to tell you about. Um, but Jeffrey Dahmer, have you noticed that's on Netflix? It's a, don't, just don't look at it. Uh, it, will be, it will be horrible. Jeffrey Dahmer um, was known as the Milwaukee Monster for good reason. Um, between 1978 and 1991... He lured men and young boys over and, um, and killed them uh, in, again, unspeakable, horrific ways. Uh, cut, forgive me, but for, cut them into pieces, refrigerated, ate. Just think the most worse. Don't even think the most worse, but dreadful, horrible, evil. Uh, he, he was a, a murderer, a, a sex offender, um, dis- 17 men and boys. He was finally caught with a freezer. It, it, it was sick and hateful and evil. What, God, what, God, what ought God do with a man like that? What do you want God to do with a man like that? Now imagine this. Imagine God just forgave him. Imagine him asking for God's forgiveness in a moment and God saying, I forgive you. And welcoming him into heaven forever. No case to answer. Imagine. Now then imagine that you have to spend eternity with him. Imagine that knowing what he did, knowing that he never paid, knowing that he was just forgiven. What would you think of a God who did that? Jonah knows exactly what to think. He would not want to live in a world with a God like that, who just forgave the Jeffrey Dahmers of this world. Now we might be getting a little closer to Jonah. God teaches him a lesson and teaches us a lesson and he does it with an enacted parable. Uh, let me take you through this. Uh, he, he says, verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah says, effectively, yes. He says that he is angry uh, and we'll come to that in a moment. But God, God says, uh, wrong answer. And then he does this enacted parable to teach him the right answer. And he he gives this plan to uh, come alongside Jonah. So verse 5, I think it's a bit of a flashback. Jonah had gone out and sat in the place east of the city to wait and see what happened to the city. Uh, I think this is a bit of a flashback. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, waiting to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. Jonah loved the plant. Um, but then at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then 
Verse 9, God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, do you see what God has just done? Wow. Do not mess with this God. Do you see what God has just done? God God has taken him full circle and asked the question again. And what, what God has done with the plant, God has acted towards the plant, destroying it, in exactly the way Jonah would have had him act towards the Ninevites, destroy them. And God asks this question again, is it right to be angry about the plant? Now, it's a complex question. Well, the question's not complex. What's being asked here is complex. Is it right to be angry about the plant? And Jonah lets it all hang out and he says, verse 9, it is right. I am so angry, I wish I were dead with you and what you have done. Do you see what God has done? He has brought to the surface Jonah's hypocrisy, his superficiality, his selfishness. You see, follow it with me. Jonah's angry about the destruction of this plant, that God has destroyed this plant, a plant that he didn't plant or tend or grow, verse 10, and he's angry that God didn't destroy the Ninevites. Which do you want me to do, destroy or not destroy? Well, I'm angry at whichever one. Now, what's the driver here? Well, it's the same. Have you ever played kids in games? Have you noticed that there's only one rule in a game that changes all the time? What's the rule in the game? I always win. (laughs) So it doesn't matter what, you you know, that's the basic rule. Here's Jonah. I hate it that you've destroyed. I hate it that you've not destroyed. Which do you want me to do, destroy or not destroy? I want you to do what I want as it suits me. You see, how dare you not destroy the Ninevites? But how dare you do destroy the plant? What's the key to it all? Well, I don't like how the Ninevites have been towards me and I do like how the plant is. It's about me. And what God has brought to the surface is the selfishness of Jonah's way of judging God's works in the world. The centre of all of Jonah's thinking here is himself. But he's also brought to the surface, God has also brought to the surface Jonah's lack of perspective and his lack of insight into what matters most. You you see, look at verse 10. You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It was nothing. And should I not have concerned for the great city of Nineveh, that great wicked city, should I have not, not have concern for that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, don't know the Mosaic law and also many animals. Do you see what God is saying? It really is quite astonishing. You care about this plant that's here today and gone tomorrow, um, a plant you didn't plant or tend or grow, it really was a nothing. Shouldn't I be concerned about a people that I planted, that I've tended, that I've watched? Now, let me give you the implications of all of this. I've got four, I think, and we'll come to Trump in a moment. First one is this. 
I want you to notice in all of this the breadth of who our God is. The breadth of who God is who's revealed in the book of Jonah. The God of Israel chose Israel. He did. He gave them his temple. He gave them his covenants. He gave them his prophets. They were a special nation. But he was never just their God. He was never a small and petty tribal deity just for them. Like all the nations had their small and petty tribal deities. That was not the God of Israel. This God, as Jonah himself says earlier in chapter 1, is the God of heaven who makes the sea and the land. He is the Lord and creator of all things, the one who made every human of every nation. And here it is, cares for every human of every nation, wicked though they are. Shouldn't I be concerned for this people, though they are not in Israel? Shouldn't I be concerned? Like, I tended them, I planted them, they're my, they're my image bearers, wicked though they are. Shouldn't I be concerned for them? He is the God of all nations. Now, right here is a powerful confirmation of the truth of God's Word. Let me, I want you to pause and think on this. Just that little observation about what God reveals of Himself and His attitude to Nineveh. How is that a confirmation of the truth of God's Word? That the Bible is actually God speaking to us and not man-made. Give us your thoughts. Can you, any observations? It is a bit of a left-field one. As long as you're thinking, I don't mind that you haven't got an answer. Let me give you mine. This claim that the God of Israel loves the wicked city of Nineveh, a nation not the same as Israel, that claim put in the mouth of God himself 3,000 years before us, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus, let's say. The book of Jonah, when it's written, that it has such a claim in its cultural context, when the earth was riddled with tribalism and racism, People did not think everyone had equal rights back then. People thought our nation was the nation, everyone else was dirt, slaves, enslaved, destroyed. Our God is the God, our God doesn't love people, our God loves us. And into that cultural context all those centuries ago, that someone would put these words and thoughts into the mouth of the God of Israel, what Hebrew would have ever thought to do that? It's evidence that what we're in touch with here is a countercultural word of God breaking in to say something no one else had thought to say. It's an astonishing insight. And it sits as the great theme of the whole Bible that the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is the God of all nations, all peoples, not just a petty God that we've made up. He is the one who sends his only son into the world to seek and save the lost, to make disciples of all nations. Because he is the God of all nations, who promises in Genesis 12 to bless all nations by choosing one nation. His great purpose is to bring blessing to all the world because he's the God of all the world. We do not serve a small and petty being. 
We serve, we serve the true God of the universe who, who plants every human and tends them, evil as they are. What an astonishing truth. Second, grace, mercy and compassion. When the Ninevites did repent, the holy God of the universe received them. He forgave the Ninevites, that great wicked city. God is holy and just, it's his glory to judge what is evil and he will judge and condemn the unrepentant sinners righteously but he will never delight in it. This is deeply important for us to embrace. God will judge righteously but it will be his alien work. He will judge, stand in fear before this God but he will never delight in it. Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 33, go home and read them. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in it, but I will bring it about if they're unrepentant. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, God God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter chapter 3, God is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance, all people come to That is our God. God is holy, He will judge. His word to Nineveh was a true word. Judgment will come, Nineveh will be overturned unless they repent. But He is a God of love, compassion and grace. And that is His great glory. His his movement towards his world is always first with compassion and love and it always ought to be our first instinct as well. Know this about your God. The Ninevites repented. The Ninevites repented and were forgiven. Friends sitting here today, any of you who turn to God in repentance, he will receive you. He will never cast you out. Whatever your history, your baggage, the horror story, the ethnicity you have, whatever, whoever believes in the Son will be forgiven. He will receive you. He will never cast aside the repentant sinner. So come to Him. Come to Him today. Because that's this God. And come back to Him every day. His mercies are new every morning. Third, and so calibrate. Calibrate your thoughts on the mercy and compassion of God. Jonah was happy to receive the mercy of God himself, he just wanted justice for everyone else. And hidden in Jonah's thinking was a failure to understand the deepest truth about God's mercy in his own life. You see, if you, if you love the fact that you've been forgiven but are reluctant to give mercy to others, it probably means you think you deserve to be forgiven. That hidden in your heart is a sense that you're worthy of it and others aren't. Let's go to Trump. You can see this is now hating. Why might some people find that a difficult picture to look at? 
Well, I might some re- I, I read lots of reactions against it. Now, this is not your confession, but why might some people find that difficult to look at? Difficult to believe Jesus would do such a thing. Give us your thoughts. Trump has no humility, and so therefore he is not worthy. He's not worthy. It seems demeaning of our Lord to to kneel and wash the feet of such a man. Now, you might be here and be a Trump supporter, actually, so let's put up someone else there. Who's the person you need to have up there? The Greens leader? No, leave it up, Cliff, sorry, keep it up. I don't know if that's saying something about you, brother, but there, leave it up there. You know who it is, but you, you, you see, here's the deal. Jesus stooped before Judas. Do, do, do you see, Jesus stooped before his disciples and, and told us to do the same. Because the heart of our God is revealed in his Son as a God of compassion, grace and mercy. You you, you see, this is our God. Now, at the moment he comes like this in weakness, one day he will come as the towering Lord of Lord and King of Kings, where all will bow, Trump included, and be broken and humble before him. But now is the age of salvation, where he comes in weakness, and he gives himself to you and says, if you repent, no matter the hole you've been, no matter how wicked and evil, I'll forgive you. Because every person I've forgiven is wicked, Me, you, we're all wicked. That I've been forgiven is a miracle beyond understanding. I'm not worthy of forgiveness by the Lord Jesus Christ, neither are you. Our only hope is that God is compassionate, gracious and merciful. And that he has shown mercy to you and me, means that we need to learn to show mercy to others. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And it's testimony to our spiritual health that we carry, we fail to love, we fail to show compassion and mercy to others and it probably means we've not understand what it's meant that we've been forgiven. Do you see? Are you carrying bitterness towards others? Are you angry with someone? Angry with someone in church? We're going to take communion soon. I'd encourage you not to take communion until you've dealt with that issue. Leave your gift at the altar and go and sort it out. If you've been forgiven and know you've been forgiven by Christ, that has been a miracle beyond understanding and comprehension that He has forgiven you means that you should now show the same forgiveness to others around you. Now, I don't mean you wipe over and pay no attention to pain and hurt and so on. You deal with things properly, of course. You talk things out appropriately, yes, but don't carry bitterness and anger without dealing with it calibrate our thoughts on mercy and lastly calibrate what matters most what things cause you to be angry thanks cliff you can take the yeah brother what things cause you to be angry jonah was angered over the loss of a plant but he was careless about the loss of a hundred thousand lives potentially going to hell what triggers your emotional energy what angers you what concerns you the loss of your garden in a storm the way the government is dealing with 
the environment, its failure to act as it should, you think it should, are you angered by that? Are you angered by the way schools operate, people function, the political... What, ang- what causes you anger? Now, I want you to take that. Work out whether it's appropriate to be angry. Some of those things you might need to be angry about. But I want you to take that and realise that it's possible you're a bit of a Jonah if you find your greatest energy is focused in those things and you have no emotional energy to be concerned about the loss of hundreds of thousands of people around us going to hell. Is that possible? That the things that really stir you up are are the way the news broadcast is managed. Uh, You you know, it's... um, your flights have been cancelled again and that really gets you going but the loss of a hundred thousand lives around us going to hell you don't even have a think you don't ever think about it is it possibly we're a little like Jonah are you never outraged by the failure to preach the true gospel of grace alone faith alone Christ alone Are you able to hear the gospel distorted and perverted so people are lost to eternity and not be phased at all? But have someone misspeak about gender issues, bang. Do you see, we need recalibration here. Because God shows you what matters most. And it's the hearts and lives of people being saved and brought to find mercy and forgiveness in Christ alone. That's what should energise us. That's where our money should go. That's the thing that should prompt us to be generous, to further the cause of gospel preaching above all else. Now, you've got lots of things to be responsible with your money about, of course. But I'm talking about a relative thing. To be captured by eternal matters like God is. To be more and more shaped like Him. Let me pray. Oh no, let me, let me ask Jez what I should do. <laughs> Praise? Okay, good, all right. Um, friends, we're, we're trying not to just have musicians come up during prayer time. We want to actually have time where they come up and then stand and pray with us. So we're sort of trying to... But I've been for 30 years doing one thing and I need to... taking a long time to break my habits. So just pray, okay, good. <laughs> Father, we, uh, we come before you um, aware that our thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. And we ask in humility that you might please transform our hearts, change us more and more to be captured by the things that do matter most, the things that you reveal to matter most. Help us to know you as the compassionate, gracious, holy God, uh, that we might quickly and readily come to you for mercy and know that you delight to show mercy. But help us too particularly to be captivated by the deep and serious problem of a world that's lost, a world you made that's going to hell. Help us therefore give ourselves under you and by your strength to the task of bringing the gospel to such a needy world, a task that you have given us to do out of your love. We pray it in Jesus' name.